I don't know if you counted or not, uh, that was 40. There was a lot of folks out there that were baptized the other day. It's a great, great time for us to celebrate as a church. Just uh, what an amazing thing that God has done. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't done so, be sure when the date's announced next year, go ahead and mark that on your calendar. You want to come out for that. You didn't get to be there by technology. You got to see it, but it's just a great experience, a great worship experience for the day. So uh, it reminds me when I watched that video of the importance of next steps. And you think about what about next steps? Well, what we saw just now is a, an example of individuals who were certainly making public their declaration of their faith in Christ. Uh, but I, as a youth pastor for many years, sometimes I would hear a parent inadvertently say to me something like maybe their last child, their third or fourth child would make their profession of faith and would be baptized. And they'd say, whew, I'm glad, glad we're finished with it. Glad we got that done now. You know, glad we got them uh, through the baptistry. And I wanted to say, no, no. And some would say, no, this is the beginning. This is not the end. I mean, so you've not finished anything. We're really just starting. Jesus was very clear on what those next steps need to be for us. And the text that we're going to look at today addresses that very issue of uh, what are some of those next, uh, next steps. But for us in our church, those next steps for us are closely linked to our life groups in our church. Uh, you see, our life groups in our church really are our primary disciple-making vehicle and strategy. For a person to, to grow in their faith, their walk with Christ, and in terms of anything organized in our church, our, we have people connected to groups where they can begin to grow in their journey of faith and continue to grow throughout their lifetime. We see life groups as being just real vital to being connected to a part of this church. Now, I'm grateful for every teacher who works with our preschoolers, our children, our youth, or our adults. I'm grateful for the time that they invest in making that uh, commitment to serve in those areas to be able to teach effectively. And what a great investment of their time and their life in the lives of others. Next week, many of you know, is Promotion Sunday. It's the new beginning of the new life group year. Now, for adults, Promotion Sunday means nothing. So nothing whatsoever because adults don't promote. I learned that uh, years ago. Uh, but for preschool children and youth, they go to their next grade level. They go to their new class, their new teacher. All, all things are new next week. But for adults, they just change the numbers on the outside of their class. Their ages just move up, so they don't move classes. They just stay the same, okay? Uh, that's okay. That's okay. Well, for, for this next year, though, as uh, we make our way into this um, new life group year, we have a number of new people that have come on board that have raised their hand and said, hey, I'd be willing to help out and be a part of teaching and a part of the leading uh, in this area of ministry. When I think about those leaders, it reminds me of what a Christ-like characteristic that is for those who teach. You know that Jesus was certainly closely associated with teaching, was a great teacher, now, while there's some people who don't recognize Jesus as Lord, even, even secular people in the world recognize that Jesus was a great teacher. I would say he was a master teacher. There were some things that we read in the Gospels that help us understand more about how Jesus taught and how masterfully he did teach. When you see the reaction of others around him, because others, as Jesus taught, responded by saying, he teaches as one who has an authority that's different from the scribes and Pharisees. People recognized there was something profound about the teaching of Jesus. And others have, have made efforts to study the teaching techniques and methodologies, which are excellent, I mean, that Jesus employed. But you see, it wasn't just that he used stories effectively or just that he used object lessons or illustrations and those great teaching methodologies and techniques that made him a great teacher. No, Jesus had an authority. The power of God was on him and in him and the way he communicated 
to people, they recognized this was something more than just a natural teacher. You see, when we look at teachers around the world or great leaders, sometimes we associate credentials with effective leadership. Sometimes we would say, oh, this guy's going to be great. He's an Ivy League school graduate. I mean, he went to this school. That means he's going to be great. And so many of the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day, they kind of leaned on their pedigree, and their authority was that they went to the right school, trained by the right rabbi, and so they were, had the correct teaching. But people recognized that Jesus had a different kind of authority in his teaching. Not only did he teach with authority, but Jesus also taught in a way that he lived out what he taught to other people. There are a number of examples in Scripture, but think of the crucifixion. Think about Jesus uh, being tried and being um, taken to this point of his death. And even as he's being crucified, nailed to a cross by these Roman soldiers, do you remember the prayer that Jesus prayed? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's consistent with what Jesus said to his disciples earlier. Jesus had already taught them years before. He said, look, you've got to love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who misuse you. He said, what good is it if you just love people that love you? Even the pagans do that. Jesus said, but love your enemies and forgive them. What was he doing? That very thing. He lived what he taught. So Jesus, uh, as a great teacher, just reminds me that those who teach in the life of our church and those who teach and serving in our life groups, that's a Christ-like quality, and it's a good thing. It's to be affirmed. I want this message today to really be a way of honoring those who teach and a way of saying thanks to you for what you're doing in your effort to fulfill uh, the text we'll look at today. So if you have your Bible, open it to Matthew uh, chapter 16, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And in some ways, this text also helps us with answering a question, why do we make such a big deal about groups in our church? Why do we make such a big deal about teaching? Well, I would say the short answer to that is because Jesus made a big deal about it. Jesus gave us some very clear instruction about uh, teaching and what we should do. Matthew chapter uh, 28, verses 16 through 20, the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Jesus came and he spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded to you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Amen. The setting for this Jesus has already been crucified. He's been tried. He's been crucified. He's been buried. According to the scriptures, three days later, he rose from the dead. And Jesus is now gathering with his disciples, and these are some final words to them. These are final instructions. And as Jesus gathers with them, he makes an important point in verse 18 that we sometimes miss. We often think of this passage as the Great Commission, and it is. It is Jesus' commission. He's sending them out. We often think about it starting with verse 19 of go into the world and make disciples. It really begins in verse 18. Jesus made this declaration. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And we get this. We live in a military community. We understand authority. We understand rank. And we understand uh, this idea that those with higher rank uh, those that have been given an authority to give directives, to give commands, to give orders, can just say that we're to do this, that someone is to do this. 
And the response to that is to salute and to move forward with carrying out the command. Jesus, we know, not only spoke to the disciples at this time saying that he had this authority, but we also see it as we read through the Gospels. We see Jesus demonstrate this authority. You remember there was a time when Jesus encountered a man who was possessed with a demon? And this demon was wrecking this guy's life, and Jesus, in helping this man, spoke directly to the demon. And here's what he said to him, be quiet, come out of him. Recognize that that's an authoritative command. He didn't just say, if you don't mind, could you move over here? That'd, be, that'd really be helpful for you. No, he didn't request that the demon do that. Why did he do that? Because Jesus is the one who has all authority in heaven and in earth. Jesus had the authority to command spiritual forces. And he said to this demon, get out. He did it in other places. There was a man who was lame. He was seeking healing, and when Jesus healed him, Jesus said to him, take up your mat and walk. He didn't say, you know, you, if you get to feeling better later this afternoon, you might want to move around and do some egg. No, he said, take your mat, get up, and walk. It was an authoritative command. Jesus had all authority in heaven and earth to be able to do that. One day, Jesus was traveling with his disciples, and they decided to go across the Sea of Galilee, traveling to the other side, and a storm came up while they were on the sea. Jesus had fallen asleep in the stern of the boat. The disciples became alarmed. These were seasoned fishermen, but this was a serious storm. They became frightened. They finally woke Jesus up and said, Jesus, Master, don't you care that we're going to perish? We're going to die out here. And what did Jesus do? Peace. Be still. The disciples, the Bible says, were astonished. They were amazed at what he did. They turned to one another and said, Who is this man that he, even the winds and the waves obey him? I'll tell you who he is. He's the only begotten Son of God. He's the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth to command even the forces of nature to be still, to stop, to bring peace. That's who was speaking to them. And Jesus had every right to do this, but instead of just there observing that, Jesus reminds them, I have this authority to do this. And now I'm going to tell you, here are your final words, here's your commission, here's what you are to do from this point on. And then verse 19, go therefore and make disciples. A disciple is a, a follower, a disciple is a learner, a disciple is a student. These men were disciples. They were students of Jesus. They had traveled with him. They had learned from him. And so his instruction to these students was that they are to go and make others like them, like themselves. He said, go and make disciples. In our church, we would call that a missionary follower of Jesus. An individual who's on mission, an individual who's committed to the mission of Christ, to taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. To helping other people know that they can find hope in Christ alone. A missionary, one who is a follower, not running ahead of Jesus, but following after Jesus. Jesus told them to go and make others like themselves. Go make disciples. Second step, what do they do? They're to baptize them. This baptism was not something that was going to wash away anyone's sin, but this baptism would be this public declaration, a public testimony without words. It would be a reminder to those who watched it as individuals went into the water. It would remind them that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. That he was buried. 
And then three days later, he rose again and he lives today. But it would also be a picture and a testimony. It would be their silent sermon. It would be their sermon without words that I too am now a follower of Jesus and I'm identifying with him. I am dying to my old sinful, selfish way of living. And I'm rising to live a new kind of life, the kind of life with the Spirit of God, with Jesus Christ residing in me, empowering me to live the life that he calls me to live. We just watched that. We just witnessed 40 individuals taking that step and making that public declaration. But what comes next is really the focus of what I want us to give our time and attention to today. So I'm calling the four tasks of the teacher. And the first one of those we find at the beginning of verse 20. What is the first task of the teacher? It is to teach. I know some of you are thinking, wow, that's profound. I'm glad I came today. Um, But I say that to you because sometimes we actually miss this along the way. What is teaching? Teaching is giving instruction. Teaching, Bruce Wilkinson says, is causing learning to happen. Teaching creates an environment where individuals can learn. Uh, Teaching is this process of helping others understand. Teaching is about making complicated things simple. Sometimes people confuse that. Sometimes people who would attempt to teach would take something very simple, like the gospel, and make it so complicated that someone can't understand it. That's not teaching. Teaching is taking those things that are hard to maybe understand and to be able to find ways to help others comprehend that. And so prerequisite to teaching, to to following this instruction, the task of the teacher to teach, is to know. It's prerequisite that I know something before I attempt to teach something. We understand that. It's hard for me to take someone to a place where I've never been. It's difficult for me to help someone understand something that I don't understand. But it's not just about knowing facts and information that we're trying to teach. Jesus helps us understand here that prerequisite in this teaching is knowing not facts and information, but is knowing Christ. You recognize that foundational for this teacher is that these men, followers of Jesus, they knew Jesus. And they were going to help others understand who they are in Christ and then help them understand how they too can become followers of Christ. Jesus said eternal life is this, that they know you, the only one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent, John 17, 3. You see, before one can teach, they need to know. But not just the facts. They need to know Jesus. How can I help another person have an intimate, living, dynamic relationship with Jesus if I don't have that myself? Knowing Jesus is foundational to teaching. That's the first task of the teacher. What's the second task of the teacher? The second task of the teacher is to teach them. I know you're really thinking, wow, this really is good. I mean, it took a long time to put this together. But the them, it's the pronoun. It stands in the place of those disciples, those individuals that Jesus said you're to go and make those disciples. Now you teach them. Here's my point. The them. We teach people. If you ask a teacher sometimes what they teach, sometimes they will say to you, I teach science, I teach biology, I teach math, I teach English. But that's a bit of an error. That is the subject matter. But we teach people. People are individuals. People are individuals uniquely created by God. They are individuals created in the image of God. They are one of a kind. 
And because of that, it means that each person who is the learner has a different level of learning, has a different style of learning, a different approach, a different method or measure of maturity. They have different levels or kinds of creativity. And it means that teaching must be sometimes customized to help this individual be able to learn. The task of the teacher is not to throw up so many hurdles to keep people from learning. The task of the teacher is to cause learning to happen and to help people to be able to learn. And so when we recognize that we're not teaching just a subject matter, but we're really teaching people, we realize that in some ways we're kind of partnering with God to help teach these others who are created in His image, those who can reason and think and understand. We are sharing in that mission The uniquenesses of those individuals mean, again, that it requires something else of the teacher, that they too express creativity in being able to help individuals learn in ways that they can remember and ways that they can understand. Let me show you this way. I don't know how you learned your right from your left. Now, probably most of you in the room know your right from your left today, but you know, when you're three or four years old, that can be really confusing. Getting those shoes on right and all that kind of stuff is confusing. But someone showed me that if I do this, this makes an L, this does not. So this is my left hand. Again, I know you're astounded at that, but uh, just, but some of you think that's true, that's right. Well, it is right. This makes your L, so this is your left hand, okay? A creative way for somebody to be able to understand. Maybe someone taught you in another way, in a way that worked well for you. But when I need to make a decision that involves left, I can, okay, it's this way, all right? So I, I remember, all right? So it's an easy way to recall. God made us unique and individual, and even in how we learn. Some of you may have learned how to set the table this way. When you set the table, you put a plate down, and then you have silverware, and the fork goes where? On the left. I don't know how you know that, but I was taught that left has four, word, four letters, L-E-F-T. I mean, um, I'm sorry. Great, that didn't work. Fork has four letters, F-O-R-K, and left, four letters, L-E-F-T. Fork goes on the left, and spoon and knife have five letters, and conveniently right has... You're astounded, aren't you? That's amazing. I know. I was amazed too, but I think I've never forgotten it. So, well, God allows teachers to be able to find unique and clever and creative ways to help people learn and remember. And Jesus said next steps for new believers is to be able to help them by teaching them. We teach people. We don't just teach subjects, and we don't just teach information. And so teachers, school teachers that I mentioned a moment ago, I want to encourage you this year to recognize that regardless of the subject matter you're teaching this year, you are teaching individuals, you're teaching people created in God's image. And you can do that for His glory. Now, for us, that means that we really do have an emphasis on our groups remaining somewhat small. Uh, instead of just trying to pack more people into an existing group or an existing class, if you encounter me for very long, you know, I'm usually talking with you at some point about, are you interested in starting a new group? Or we're starting new groups. Why? Because those new smaller groups have an opportunity to help individualize instruction and help for individuals in their walk with Jesus. Now, Jesus recognized this. Jesus taught masses at times. He taught large crowds of people. And in those settings, he was largely speaking truth to them. But the majority of the teaching that Jesus did was not just in those big groups. The reason the disciples were different from all of those other people in the crowds is because the disciples walked with Jesus. 
They lived with Jesus. They traveled with Jesus. They learned by Jesus' modeling. They saw, they watched him as he encountered individuals. They watched him as he dealt with religious leaders who were trying to take him down and how he responded to them. They watched him as he encountered um, people who were, uh, were ill and in need of healing. He watched them as he dealt with hungry people. He watched how Jesus encountered different people in situations. There was once a rich young ruler who came to Jesus and asking Jesus about how it was, is that he would gain eternal life. And the Bible says, recorded in Scripture, that Jesus looked at the man and loved him. That's amazing that you can communicate love to someone just by looking at them. The disciples observed that. They looked at Jesus, and the writer of the gospel says, Jesus looked at this young man and he loved him, and then he told him what he needed to do great power in being up close and personal. And these disciples have walked with Jesus for three years. And Jesus is saying to them, here are your final instructions. Go, make disciples. Teach them. Teach people. Teach what? Teach them to observe. That's the third task of the teacher. Teach them to observe. Now, I put in parentheses, obey. Your translation may say obey because that's what the word observe means comes from a Greek word that, that has to do with guarding, protecting, holding on to, keeping. Think about guarding a fortress and keeping something inside that's safe. You're maintaining it. You're not handling it loosely. You're not letting it go, and you're not losing it. And so Jesus said, teach them to observe or teach them to obey or teach them to keep everything that I have commanded. This is interesting because this, this idea of observing, again, is not just looking or watching. Jesus didn't say, go and just go teach people just to watch about what are some of the things that I said. What's the speed limit when you turn off of Princess Anne onto Kempsville Road going south past Rock Church? What's the speed limit in front of Rock Church? You learned it too. Good. That's great. All right. Uh, you're right. It is 35. I, and I, one of the best teachers, a Virginia Beach police officer, taught me that lesson one day. It was probably 10 years ago. I was driving home late at night. It was probably 930 or something at night. I'd left here from an event. I was going home. And once I turned on Kempsel Road, it was like autopilot, you know, like this is my last road home. I'm on the way to the house. And so I turned around and I just put the pedal down and took off until I saw those blue lights. And then I realized, oh my goodness. You see, to observe the speed limit there is not just to notice the sign and recognize that it's 35. To observe the speed limit means to keep your vehicle under 35 miles an hour in that zone. Just so you know, it changes to 45 somewhere down near the skinny dip after you cross Providence, okay? So if you stop and get some yogurt and then go on down, you can go a little faster, okay? Jesus said, teach them to observe. He didn't say just look out, just kind of figure out what it, no, no. To observe means to keep. It means to obey. Now, Jesus tied this idea of obeying to several things in Scripture. In John's Gospel, Jesus said, if you, keep, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus said, boy, the keeping of the commandments is a great expression of love for him. It is a cause-effect relationship. This is not just, uh, the, it's not something that we can go about the other way. Doing these things for God will not cause us to love him, but when we love him, out of our love for him will flow our obedience to him. Jesus also tied this idea of uh, how we live, of obeying, of putting it into practice to wisdom. 
At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus concludes this sermon by saying, now, for those who hear these words of mine and put them into practice, he said, you're like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rains came, and the floodwaters rose, and the house withstood the storm. Jesus said, for those of you who hear these words of mine, but you don't put them into practice, he said, you're like the foolish man who built his house on a foundation of sand. And when the rains came and the floodwaters rose, he said, that house collapsed, and the fall of it was great. Jesus said, that's a picture of foolishness, to hear the truth and then not do it. So Jesus makes these connections between this idea of obeying him to loving him and also uh, to wisdom. James writes uh, that there's a connection between our faith and the works that we do. And again, it's a reminder to us of this cause and effect relationship. If we go and try to do more things for God, it does not produce faith in us. But the result is, James says, if we have faith in Christ that the end result of that, it'll be demonstrated in how we live and in those things that we do, those acts of obedience to the commands of Christ. So Jesus said, task one, teach. Task two, teach people. Task three, teach them to obey. To obey what? That's task four. Jesus said that we are tasked with the responsibility of teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded we first read that, we might be tempted to think, wow, oh my goodness, I mean, that's a lot. That must be a long list of things to memorize or a long list of rules. Or, No, it's really not. We'll find those things in the Gospels. And I would encourage you, even today, to sit down and read the Gospels. Find one of those red-letter edition Bibles. You can quickly just see the words of Jesus. What you'll find is this. You'll find that there are, there are many words that Jesus spoke that were directly to individuals that were unique to their situation, like take up your mat and walk. That's not a command for all of us. Uh, that was a command to this one man Jesus healed. I read through Mark's gospel the other day. Here's what I found. Jesus said we need to repent and believe the gospel. He said we need to follow him. He said we need to listen, hear, put into practice what he says. He says deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow after him. We need to deal with our sin. We need to have peace with one another. We need to love one another. We need to watch. We need to be alert. We need to go and preach the gospel to every creature. That's not a huge list. That probably says a lot of things, but one of the things that it says to me is that this means that this step of learning is not meaning that we need to be in school forever. Jesus had taken three years with the disciples. He had invested his life in them. And he said, here, you've graduated. Now it's your turn. You need to go and do the very same thing over again. Some people have been inadvertently thought or misread this passage of Scripture to think that the, the command for sharing the gospel with people and the command for making disciples was really just to these 11 men. And so it has nothing to do with me and you today. That's foolishness. That's an illogical thought. The gospel would have ended after one generation had they just gone and taught some people and then it would have stopped there. No, the definition or a disciple by definition is a disciple maker. This disciple, this learner, this student is learning in order to be able to go and do. And the assignment that Jesus gives is that they would go and do the same thing over again and that they would develop another and another and another who would develop another and another and another who would develop another and another. 
it would be less than true to this text to say that this is just for the special forces Christians uh, that maybe, you know, the church raises up, just the elite, uh, just those people that are in some formal leading teaching capacity. I believe this passage of Scripture is applicable to every one of us who name the name of Jesus and who proclaim ourselves as a follower of Christ. That his instruction, remember, this is the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. And he was telling these 11 to do this. But I believe today he tells us to do the very same thing. So I want to ask you, how are you doing with your journey of disciple making? How are you doing in fulfilling this command from the one who has all authority in heaven and earth? Now let me help you by recognizing that this is not, again, a command for us to have to be in some formal relationship like I'm the third grade life group teacher at 930 at this church. That's not what Jesus said. It is the way we've structured and organized to be able to do that. And we've helped people get connected in relationships with one another. But I believe that it's much broader than this. So who are the people that God's given you to disciple? Let me give you a few suggestions. Some of those might be in your home around your kitchen table. I believe that one of Parts, one part of this, of God's plan for us, is that our discipleship extends to our own children. And I want to encourage those of you that have got small ones at your house, don't let this opportunity pass you by. It'll go just like that. They'll be grown before you know it. Take advantage of the opportunity that God gives you to make disciples of those that are sitting under, uh, with their feet under your kitchen table. For some of you, it may be your neighbors. For some of you, it may be coworkers. For some of you, it may be other uh, casual relationships and acquaintances. For some of you, like Kurt Breland, our missions pastor, I'm, I'm amazed at the opportunities that God continues to open up for Kurt and a team of people here who have committed themselves as a follow-up to some of the mission journeys that they've been on to maintain relationships thousands of miles away by way of the computer. You'd be amazed at the number of people that are being discipled right now that are 5,000 or more miles away from where we stand and sit today because they're intentional about what they're doing and they're taking advantage of the relationships that God has given them to be able to invest in others, to teach others, to observe or obey everything that Jesus has commanded. At some point, we graduate. At some point, we put our faith into action. I believe that we continue to be lifelong learners. That's an important thing for all of us as followers of Jesus. But there is a place where you know enough about what it means to know Jesus that you can help someone else. This is an important point I want to make for you today, for me, is to be reminded that when I learn something, when God reveals something to me, it is not for me alone. It is I learn both for myself and for others. God's given you something. He's given you something to also be able to share with and teach others around you. Don't miss that opportunity. So it's not always about formal teaching. Recognize again, the disciples learn much from Jesus by being around him. It is also the opportunity for that informal manner of teaching. There are some convictions I have about being a part of this church, and one of those is that every person in this church needs to be connected to one of our life groups. It's not just because it's my job. It's because I really do believe that being a part of a group has tremendous influence and impact on our lives. Other people investing in us in a way to help us grow to become more and more like Jesus. It is God's plan. 
So today, I want to encourage you uh, to do one of three things related to the groups that are in our church. I want to encourage you to be a part of a group or join a group. I want to encourage you to lead a group. I want to encourage you to start a group. One of those three things. And they really don't have to be super complicated. I don't have some fancy way for you to do that. I didn't make a card in advance or anything, but you certainly can tear off this Connect card. Give me some contact information on the back of that. I would love to hear from any one of you who would say, I need help finding a group. There are teachers in this church, leaders in this church that would love for you to be connected to their group. I'll help you get there. But for some of you, you realize, you know what? I've been in this group long enough. The call of Christ is strong. I realize it's time for me to step up, get out of this learning environment of this group and begin teaching some other people some of what God has taught me. Let me tell you the dirty little secret about learning. The best way to learn something is what? To teach it. You already know it. It is. That's exactly right. And so one of the things you're going to discover if you begin saying, I'm going to step up and help lead in a group, you're going to be the one that grows the most. Part of God's design. Right on there, hey, I'll be willing to serve wherever I'm needed. I'll help you get connected to a place where you can begin serving, influencing the lives of other people, helping them obey all that Christ has commanded. The last one is, hey, I'm willing to start a group. Recognize that a group doesn't have to be 20. A group can be three. A group can be four. A group can be five. I shared with our life group leaders a couple of weeks ago at our leadership rally a very simple approach for people engaging in disciple-making. And it would simply be getting together with two other people one hour a week. And it involves this, having committed yourselves together through the week to have read a certain amount or certain text of Scripture, you get together, hold one another accountable for three things. One, just your own uh, righteousness or, or your sin, things you're struggling with, things you have needs of, um, so that you can pray for one another. Hold each other accountable for what did God teach me through this text of Scripture and hold each other accountable for praying for others that are far from God that need to find new life in Christ. That is not rocket science. Now, the truth is, if you know Jesus, you could do that with a couple of other people and you would discover that God would begin to do some things in your life that are amazing. Teaching. It doesn't all have to be formal, but I want to ask you, how are you doing on your journey of disciple-making? If you're a follower of Christ, he's called you to be engaged with other people. Part of that involves sharing with them the gospel. The only place they can find hope is in relationship with God through Christ. And when they come to Christ, they need to be baptized as a public declaration of that. And then they need to be taught. My friend Larry Riley is here today. He's right over here. Uh, it's good to see you today, Larry. Uh, Larry's daughter, Kate, uh, is married to our young adult pastor, Brent Wilson. And we had breakfast together the other morning. Larry's here because he just has a new grandson. Congratulations. And I uh, was born this last week. But we had breakfast this week. We were talking about some of this passage. And, and Larry pointed out to me this truth. He said, you know, um, it's interesting that there are two places in Scripture, not three or five or ten, but two places in Scripture where Jesus makes a big emphasis on promising his presence with us. And it's right here, Matthew 28. He said, and I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. And the other place is in Matthew 18, which in the context of that passage of Scripture is about restoring broken relationships and about church discipline and about confronting a brother in sin. 
He said both of those Jesus recognized as challenging times in our life. And he wanted us to be reminded, as he reminded the disciples now, I'm sending you on a big mission. This is a huge assignment. Go. Make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And I'm going to be with you. You're not alone in this journey. I got this. Jesus promises us to be with us as we engage and embark on this opportunity to help others come to know Christ and grow in Christ. I hope that one of the things you'll do today is just be thankful for the teachers that God has brought in your life. My guess is that you can go back and remember some specific truths that some individuals taught you in your life. You know where you were at the time. You know some of the things they taught you. We need to be grateful for those teachers. We have a number of folks that are going to be starting back in a classroom next week. I want to take just a moment right now for those of you that are going to be teaching in this coming life group year, preschool, children, youth, or adults, would you just stand for just a moment? I want to let our folks express appreciation to you. If you're one of our teachers, would you please just stand? I want folks to know who you are. Some of them may be looking for a group, and these folks are doing a great job already. Would you help me in expressing your appreciation to them for what they're doing? Thank you very much. Go ahead and be seated. We're going to be off to a great year this next year, but I want to encourage you in that journey. Make sure that you're in a group. Find a way that you can start a group or step up and tell me that you'll be willing to help lead a group. I'll help you get connected. God has great things in store for our church this year, and I'm looking forward to seeing what God's going to do as we go forward in this journey of making disciples. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, what an incredible privilege it is, a blessing for us to be together today. God, to be a part of the body of Christ and to know that as you have taught others, they have indeed passed on to us what they have learned. God, I pray that we would be faithful to not withhold the very things that you've taught us from the next generation. God, I pray that you would call men and women in this church to a moment of accountability. God, in recognizing that you're the one who has all authority in heaven and earth and you've commanded us to go into the world to make disciples. God, would you help us to get that? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you help us to put into practice, like that wise man, everything that you've taught us to do? And God, would we do it for your glory alone? For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.